The faith story of the man Moses, supreme figure in Hebrew history until the advent of Jesus called the Christ. The story of Moses' faith <clears throat> really began with uh, the faith of his parents. Hebrews tells us that his parents were not afraid of the king's edict. You remember from your reading of the book of Exodus that the king of Egypt had become fearful of the growing number of Hebrews and had commanded that all of the boy children should die. They should be killed immediately following their birth. One of the legends tells us that Miriam had to chide her parents because they had decided not to have any more family after that edict. But Miriam reminded them that 400 years had passed, which was the length of the captivity of the Hebrews in slavery in Egypt. And now it was time for the great deliverer to be born. And so this family from the house of Levi found the faith to go on and have that a child in spite of the king's edict. And in the providence of God, that child born was a boy. We know he was a beautiful baby because his parents said he was beautiful. But just in case we, we thought they were biased, we read in Stephen's speech in the Acts of the Apostles that God declared him no ordinary child. So we apologize to the parents of Moses. He really was a beautiful baby. They hid him, the story tells us, for three months from those who would kill him. And then there had to be another move to keep him safe. For the women of Egypt would come to the houses of the Hebrews with the soldiers and they would bring their babies and in the huts of the Hebrews they would make those babies cry and the crying of the Egyptian baby would solicit a cry in return from the Hebrew baby and thus they would find the children and kill them. As they began that practice, they took the baby Moses, his mother and Miriam, made a little basket, we all know the story, and hid him among the bulrushes along the Nile. The daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe. She and her maidens discovered that basket. And a beautiful legend says, just as she was about to open the lid and see the child, the angel Gabriel made that little baby cry. And when she saw the child crying, she had pity on him and decided to keep him for herself. Miriam offered the child's own mother as its nurse. And so it was that the mother of Moses uh, kept him for a time and afterward he went to live in Pharaoh's palace. Now, the remarkable thing about the faith of Moses 
was not just the faith that preceded and accompanied his birth, but when a young man, he decided to identify with his own people, choosing the suffering of God's people rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. So he left that palace and chose instead to identify with his own people. Now, the Bible, in all of its honesty, uses that word pleasures when talking about sin. I spent a lot, large part of my life believing that um, those sinners were doing something, but they weren't really finding any pleasure in it. I had heard of all of the awful things that went on in a pool hall, for instance, uh, into which I was never permitted to go. I, I, I heard it was just awful in those places. I remember how startled I was when I went to a neighboring town where they had an infamous pool hall, and I stood for a few moments in front of the door of that pool hall, and it looked for all the world like they were having fun in there. I was startled. It really looked like they were having a ball. And I wondered about that. But, but here the Bible says there are some pleasures attending sin. It, it can be pleasurable. Uh, thank goodness, Sam Jones says, the sinner is never satisfied. Uh, thank goodness uh, the sinner doesn't know peace. Uh, they might be satisfied with that. Uh, but there are some pleasures uh, accompanying Sin and, and Moses had the temptation of, of staying with those pleasures or, or being caught up in the plan and the purposes of God. And to his eternal credit, he chose the things of God. What did he really leave behind? Stephen tells us he was 40 years old when he left the palace. We aren't talking about a, an impulsive young man of 19 or 20. We're talking about a mature person, 40 years of age, who had time to weigh all of the advantages and disadvantages and to prayerfully pray them out. We're talking about someone, Stephen tells us, who was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt who had been to the finest schools, who had, who had received the culture and the refinement of, of probably the most advanced nation in the world at that time, oh, certainly one of the most. We're talking about someone who, who was in line, according to some stories, for the throne of Egypt. If not in line for the actual crown, certainly a, a part of the hierarchy of power. We're talking about someone who left all of that. Indeed, to this very day, people traverse the earth and stand in line and pay their money to see the fragments of the palace Moses left. And why did he leave such grandeur and glory? Because he saw a greater glory in the desert with the people of God. That's why he left it, because of the glory in identifying with the things of God. Now, 
In reality, that sin that he would have enjoyed is probably not at all what we might be thinking about. The sin would have been for Moses to enjoy the favors and the power of the Egyptian court rather than accepting the divinely appointed task in his own life. James says, whoever knows to do right and doesn't do it, uh, for him it's sin. And so for Moses not to accept his duly appointed task in his life, just as for any of us, for him not to do that, he would have been engaging in the pleasures of sin. But sin and its pleasures is fleeting. It lasts only for a season. And it is the nature of seasons to end. Moses chose the eternal. How did Phillips say it in his translation? Phillips said, Moses looked to the ultimate reward rather than the immediate. The ultimate rather than the immediate. Our culture is in great need of that ability. For we have an underdeveloped capacity to delay our gratification. We have an underdeveloped capacity to deny ourselves the immediate good as over against the long-term good. We have a very difficult time because of the very tenor of our times. We live in an age when people say, play now, pay later. We live in a time when, when we deserve a vacation, we deserve a break, we deserve a vacation whether we've worked hard or not. We, do, we live in a time when we aren't supposed to work for it nor wait for it. We live in a time when everything in the media tells us the instant gratification is the norm. That's what it's all about. Do it now. And in a desperate grab for greed, they tell us to do that, although that very idea is undermining the character of our people and more and more instilling the old idea of something for nothing or a sense of entitlement that life owes me all of these good things. Oh, that is an underdeveloped capacity in our culture of which Moses had such a glorious amount. Who can forget Scott Peck's uh, dramatic example of such a person who has no capacity for delayed gratification? The most memorable illustration he used was of the woman who was a financial analyst, you recall, 30 years of age, who was constantly having problems at her place of employment because she was a procrastinator. She could never get things done, constantly in hot water. And she came to him, to her credit, looking for help. He went through all the psychoanalysis. He, he, he walked her through every part of it. And then he found on an impulse. Well, he thought she would think he was crazy. He, 
He asked her if she liked cake. She said, of course I like cake. He said, would you tell me, please, what part of the cake you eat first? She said, I eat the, the frosting, of course. That's the part I love the best. I eat the frosting. And so he said, well, tell me about your work. And she said, well, I have a few things I really enjoy. I just love to do them in my work. And then I have many more things that I just don't enjoy at all. I just do it because I have to. And he said, why don't you, instead of uh, doing those things you enjoy first, why don't you turn it around and, and do the things you don't like first and do the things you like as a reward? And she turned it around, and was no longer a procrastinator. Scott says it's the only decent way to live. Delayed gratification. I can tell you, biblically speaking, it's the only attitude that will allow God to use you to achieve His purposes. It's the most productive way to live. It's the most effective way to live. Makes a lot of sense, biblically speaking. I remember as a grown-up little boy of eight years of age, when I went to my parents and said, I really think it's time for me to have a shotgun. I'm just really tired of this uh, air rifle. I, I think I'm big enough now to get a single-barrel 410. And uh, after talking about it uh, with my parents, they, they agreed that it was time for me to, to move on to the next stage of my outdoor development. And so my daddy said, very well, uh, son, um, the next time the old sow has pigs, you, you can get the extra one, the, the one she's incapable of feeding. You can get the one we call the slop bucket pig. Uh, the one we raised on scraps. You might think that cute, a little boy taking care of a little pig like that, feeding him more times every day than I could ever imagine a pig could eat. They're well-named, you know that? <laughs> and the only problem with that pig, he grew up to be a hog. And he followed me all over the place. He was the biggest nuisance, and everything he did, I was responsible for it. I was, I was wedded to that pig and, and, and him to me. You may say, well, I know you got attached to him, watching him grow up like that. I want to tell you, the day he went off to market weighing 200 pounds, I didn't feel any remorse whatsoever. <laughs> I was so glad to get him off that farm. And finally, I went to the window and picked up my check and went by the hardware store and bought my single-shot 410 shotgun. My parents were so wise, I didn't know how wise they were. The, the best, the most we can expect from our parents and we have to teach our children this, is that they make a way for us. They provide the, the raw materials, but they don't hand it to us. We have to learn somewhere, and, and probably if we don't learn it from our parents, we never learn it. 
we have to learn this concept of, of delayed gratification, that, that the things that are worthwhile, you have to work and you have to wait. You have to learn to think in terms of the ultimate reward and not just the immediate. If you're going to get an education, if you're going to have a, a skill in life, if you're going to have a Christian home, if you're going to have a Christian marriage, if you're going to have a mature spiritual life, we're talking about something that will require a great deal of you. You avoid the pain and you avoid the significant issues in life. I like that cadet's prayer at West Point. Lord, help me to choose the harder right rather than the easier wrong. Anyone who would make a worthwhile contribution will learn something of the nature of goals. Well, God had his deliverer in Moses. He he had his lawgiver, and, and it wasn't hard to pick him out when you see a man who could, who could show the faith that Moses had. Somebody asked Henry Ford one time how he selected a leader. He said, a leader, you select a leader the same way you select a tenor for a quartet. You get the one who can sing tenor. I mean... It's so obvious in, when it comes to a leader. You have to have, God wants someone who can deny himself. God wants someone who can, can set aside the immediate and the interest of the long pull. Someone who can look at the ultimate goal. I think about that man Bonhoeffer, who was offered a full professorship here in America. They wanted him at Union Seminary. He was already a renowned theologian. But this was the early part of 1939, and, and war had broken out in Germany. And Bonhoeffer wrote Niebuhr a letter, and he said, I can't take your good offer, because unless I'm with my people in their suffering, I can never be with them in their reconstruction. No wonder he made such an impact on the Christian church. Christian church has not been the same since Bonhoeffer. Indeed, Einstein, an exile from Germany, said, at one time I didn't have any respect for the church. But he said when Hitler stormed to power, claiming he had a mandate from God, when Hitler came to power, I looked to the universities to oppose him. The great schools didn't do anything. He said, I looked to the writers and to the newspapers. He said, they didn't do anything. He said, it was only a little knot of church people who dared to oppose Hitler. He said, I'll respect the church for as long as I live. The leader in that little knot was Bonhoeffer, who paid with his life. How did Moses endure? How did he have such great faith? The Bible tells us he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He looked into the face of God and he's had from looking into the face of God on a regular basis, he was given a faith that included vision. Oh, what a faith and what a vision. He looked at a race of slaves and saw the people of God. 
He instituted the Passover and said, I want you to observe it uh, throughout all the centuries. My goodness, they weren't even a people yet. And he was already seeing down through the centuries. He could see a time when Christ would bring to a consummation all the plans of God. And he thought, what an honor it is to suffer that same reproach as a part of the people of God. What's the matter with so many people? Why, Johnny Miller spoke about that in an article in Golf Digest of all places. Johnny Miller said, the fire just doesn't burn hot enough in the lives of some people. Just not hot enough. He said, think about the difference between me and, and Jack Nicholas." He said, in, this is back in 1974 and 75, he said, I, I won a few tournaments and I, I felt like I was on top of the mountain. And it was time to sit back and enjoy the view. He said, Nicholas won some tournaments and was on top of the mountain. And he started looking around for some more mountains to climb. Vision. Having a vision. That makes a difference. Moses saw the people of God. And where did his vision come from? He was looking continuously into the face of his God. Jesus said, you put me on that cross, I'll draw all men to myself. He had a vision. I want you to pray every day, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He had a vision. Oh my, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He had a vision, and he wants us to share his vision. He wants you to be a part of the people of God. He wants you to identify with the work of God by serving him wherever you are. Have you made a commitment to be a part of the work of God? To be a part of the people of God? If you would like to, you can come this morning. You can take that new member's card in the back of the pew, fill it out and bring it forward as we sing. You can go back and check the registration of attendance that you want to talk to a minister and we'll, we'll call you and talk about your commitment. I urge you to respond as we stand and sing our hymn of commitment. Let us sing the first, second, and last stanzas of Jesus I My Cross Have Taken.
now as God's people and wait, I say wait upon the Lord. Amen.